0: Hello, welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show. I'm sitting today in the conservatory of the novelist Jim Crace. Jim, an award-winning novelist, his book Quarantine won the Whitbread Prize, it was shortlisted for the Booker. His new novel, The Melody, is out now. And Jim is going to talk to us about the idea that within everybody there is a novel. We often hear it said that Everyone has a book in them. But how do you move from having that book within you to having it on your bookshelf? Hi, Jim. How are
1: you? I'm fine. Yeah. Um, In fact, even this morning, I think you said um, when I was recounting an anecdote about an argument with a neighbour, you said there's a book in there for you, Jim. Everyone leads lives which are full of incident and, and full of distress and full of happinesses and joys that you feel are strong narratives and that's what books are they're narratives so everyone has got the raw material in their lives to write a book but very very few people do do you think it's true that
0: everybody has a book in them if they apply themselves in the right way
1: well when you add up all the things that separate us from all the other mammals in the world let's not forget we are a mammal there are many things that we can do that other mammals can't do you know being able to um to laugh, being able to uh, fear the future and fear death, all of those kind of things. But amongst all the, all of that great list that consciousness gives us is also a narrative a, a gift. We are the storytelling mammal. And I have always believed that ever since there was fire, ever since human beings sat round a fire with cold backs and warm foreheads late at night after a hard day's um, hunting, What was bound to happen was they would tell each other the story of the day. They weren't writing it down. They weren't publishing it. They were telling each other the story of the day. Exactly the same as we do when we're in the pub, you know, over an evening or when you go home and meet your family after a day at work. Now, not everybody is good at that. Pretty soon we recognise that when that certain bloke comes into the pub that we don't want a conversation with him about what he did that day because it's going to bore the pants off you. But most of us have got a level of skill, that we know how to retell our day, not giving too many details, emphasising the punchline, um, you know, giving a little bit of local colour but not too much. As a, as a creature, as a, as a mammal, we're good at that. And I think that basically that's the transition from being good talkers to being good writers. What was it for you
0: then? What was your switch on moment that made you realise that, you could tell stories, and that you wanted more than anything else in your life to tell stories?
1: Well, there's two parts to answer. One is physical, and one is um, uh, cultural, I suppose. I lived in, in the, on the Pilgrim Estate in North London, and uh, uh, so we were all in each other's flats. We lived, we lived on, on a uh, ground floor flat, and across the entry uh, from where we lived was the flat where um, the Bancrofts lived, and, the, and Mr Bancroft was called Banny. And he was very sophisticated. He was just a factory worker, but he had one of those huge um, phonograms, you know. I mean, that was as big as a fridge-freezer, but they were basically just a radio and a, a way of playing um, seventy-eight to 8 uh, um, uh, records. And he had a record by a man called Peter Dawson, who was a very, very posh Australian. I know that sounds like that can't happen, but it can. Very <laughs> plummy-voiced Australian. And he you, sang on this record a song written by Rudyard Kipling, called The Road to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play. And I used to love that song for the lyrics, because the whole idea to a seven-year-old, eight-year-old boy of Mandalay, the richness of that place name, the road to Mandalay, but it's the sea, how can it be the road? Flying fishes playing. It was beautiful, and if you ever have a moment, check it out on on the uh, web, that beautiful poem by uh, Kipling. And I used to go in there and I'd say, Banny, Banny, can you put it on, can you put it on? And I think it really told me that, um, that there was a kind of beauty and power in, in words that a lot of people don't find out until much, much later. So very, very early on, I, 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 was, I was motivated to be able to write my own Road to Mandalay, to use, to use um, words lyrically. There was something else as well. My dad had um, osteomyelitis which is a form of poliomyelitis, but it's in the bones and uh so when he he got it when he was about nine years old and he stopped being educated after nine years old so he, he couldn't read my wonderful bright clever dad didn't learn to read until he was reading to us uh, me and my brothers when I mean my brother and uh so he was struggling to read when He was in his thirties reading to us and the book book he read to us was Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. And I remember being completely wrapped up in that and I don't remember the plot except of course you remember the big footstep in the sand and Man Friday. But what I loved best were the early sections where the boat that he shipwrecked on is sinking into the bay and every day Robinson Crusoe goes out and comes back to his island with something new. Day one he comes back with a parrot. Day two, he comes back with some mustard, a, a, a musket, you know, a, a rifle. Day three, he comes back with some cloth. Day four, he comes back with some seed that he can um, that he can um, seed and and grow. And I just love that. It seemed to me that what he was doing, Robinson Crusoe, was taking objects and building a life, and it was. If you know my books, you'll know that in a way that's exactly the kind of my methodology. All of my books row out to the boat and come back with stuff to make a new world. Because all my books are set in invented worlds. And so that was a big, big influence. But there was a third little personal influence as well about words. And that was that I've always was and still am a very small person. I mean, particularly when I was a kid, I was known as Titch. I mean, I'm, I'm average height now but I was the smallest kid on this date. I wasn't going to get by physically, and I could be bullied. But what I found out quite quickly was that words are also a weapon, and also they are a defence. I found that I could win friends by being witty with words, and I found that I could wound people with words, therefore they were nervous of me. And so those kind of things came together. So as a young kid, 7 to about 15, I nurtured my word ability, because it gave me an advantage.
0: Fascinating stuff. Tell me a bit more about your dad, because he was nine. He developed this condition. Why wasn't he educated any more than that? Well, because well,
1: partly I think because his his dad sold fish off a of barrow, and um, uh, I mean, my dad was quite ill really. I, I, and in fact, I uh, you know all of my. All of my childhood, I remember the district nurse coming around every morning to give him injections to stop the pain. I mean, you know, he, so he was a man who suffered, who never complained about it. But I think also his father rather liked my dad being around to help out in the fish bar- barrow. This was North London. They'd go around different areas with fresh fish that would come in from Felixstowe or whatever on a barrow, and they'd sell it during the day. So my dad not only was in pain, not only being, not being educated, but he was having to work for his living as well. Hard times. Yeah, indeed. So you developed
0: then this feeling for words and understanding, appreciating the value of words, both to entertain and, as you say, to wound. Was there a particular moment in your life when you decided, well, actually, yes, this particular form of narrative storytelling that we call the novel, that's the way
1: I'm going to use words? I think my dad knew before I did. Um, I should explain about my dad. He was, um, he was a working-class atheist socialist, right? And he, he had no time for any, any mysticism or, or anything of that kind. However, he, he was one of those old-fashioned socialists that didn't say opera, literature, jazz, art. They're not for me. They're only for the toffs. He was the kind that said, I want some of that. So when we were kids, we would go into the East End and we'd go to the Whitechapel Art Gallery and see art. we go to the Islington, um, uh, you know, to Saddles Wells and, and Hear Opera. We'd go to um, Joan Littlewood's uh, Theatre Workshop and, and see plays. We were gathering it around us. And my dad was a keen reader once he got grasp of reading. And he knew early on that the essential tool, and this is my first hint for would-be writers, the essential tool for being a good writer, was having a wide vocabulary. He knew that uh, the best tool for that was a book called Roger Sothoris, which if you don't know Roger Sothoris, uh, is uh, a collection of of synonyms and antonyms, words which kind of mean the same thing. When I was 10 years old, the word went out that my dad was going to buy me a A Christmas present? My dad never bought anybody a Christmas present. He wasn't a celebratory kind, but he was buying me a Christmas present. Boy, was I excited. How much Meccano was there going to be at that Christmas? (laughs) Um, When I opened it up, it was completely inexplicable. It was the uh, Dent Dutton Everyman's edition of Roger (laughs) Sothorus. I just opened it up waiting for the tension in notes to drop out. I mean, there was nothing about that present that I could make any sense of. But I still have that very same book upstairs. I'm still using that 1955 edition of Roger Sothoros. And it is essential. Because the great thing about the English language is you can't say there's not a word for that. There's always a word for it. And sometimes there's a really nuanced word for it um, that you can't always bring to mind. If you're a writer, you don't want to be over fancy, but you need to know what's available.
0: I think people will find that fascinating because as well as the invented worlds that are part of your fiction there is a, a clearly a great love of language and very inventive vocabulary, I think people might be surprised to find that even Jim Crace uses Roger's Thesaurus.
1: It's the key, it's the key. <laughs> but do we get the 1955 edition because that's the one with all the old words in it, the words that we've lost that you can rescue and reuse, you know. So I so I now love that book. And in fact, you can read it out to yourself. You know, you can get a section which is called Harmony, say, and there'll be, a, there'll be 150 words which some variation of the meaning of the word harmony, read it out loud, it's kind of a poem. So my dad kind of spotted it early on. But my first interest was politics, because there was a kind of a mischievous side of me, which is the narrative side, which is the storytelling side. But there's also a kind of quite pious, um, uh, Puritan side to me, which is the political side, on the left, I have to say. Um, So during my teens, I was really busy with politics, and and if I was writing anything, it was leaflets. It wasn't fiction. So, um, and then when I started working, finally, I didn't want to write fiction because it seemed fiction for me sounded like a, a, a middle-class activity. I wanted to engage with politics and with big issues. So I was a journalist for many years. So I didn't come to writing fiction until I was, I was 40 years old. That was my first book in 1986. So talking about the steps that people might
0: take, then you've talked about vocabulary and yeah. having a, a guess through politics, a sort of a wider interest in life. Where else?
1: Right. First of all, uh, you have to, to, to write well. You have to have the confidence to write badly. Now, I know that sounds crazy. But if you say, I'm not going to put a single sentence on that screen or on that piece of white paper until that sentence is perfect, you will write nothing. The key to writing well is to splurge it out from the word go. It doesn't matter if at the end of the day, your thousand words that you have set, your tar- your, the target you set yourself, that's what I do, a thousand words a day. If those thousand words are really blemished and really poor and clumsy and don't really do what you want to do... um. You shouldn't feel dismayed. You would think, that's a result. Because on day two, you can go back and you can improve it. And on day three, you can improve it. And then you push it forward. There's always the ability to improve. So have the confidence to write badly. Because if you write badly, you have something to correct. If you don't write anything because it's not perfect, you have nothing to correct. So that's my, my first tip. But it's not good enough just blurting out, you need a subject matter. Um, my other piece of advice is unless you have led an absolutely fascinating life that when you recount it to your friends at in a cafe or, or at christmas their eyes don't glaze over unless you've written a, read, led a life like that don't think you are you yourself are fascinating you need something that appeals to the reader not something that appeals to your cousin and uh, mind you, your your cousin could be your only reader, but still. Um, so you need to come up. You need you need strong subject matter. So if you're writing autobiography, and you haven't had an interesting life, you are sunk. But if you're writing fiction, as I ca- I am, there's nothing you cannot make up. Don't be constrained by dull facts. There's nothing and nowhere you can't go if you write fiction. So that's point one.
0: And you just to go back to your. Uh, your kind of favoured method, if you like. You you invent worlds, worlds that we think we might know or that we might understand. The gift of stones, I'm thinking of, which is a a time when there is a a significant change, when technology is changing. Harvest, again, a time of technological change. These are kind of big historical moments, and we might think we have an idea of them. But uh, am I right in thinking that you don't necessarily do massively exhaustive research that because we're not going to go back and check are
1: we no i mean i set part of the reason that i do set my books in uh in invented places is just so people can't go back and say (laughs) you've got that wrong because because if you set a book in in india um and the reader has got to read that book and they've got to say yeah i've been to india it smells like that it tastes like that and it sounds like that You know, you're looking for recognition You're looking to locate your reader in a recognisable place. And those kind of realist writers, and this is a big decision every writer has got to make, are you a realist writer or are you an inventive writer? But if you're a realist writer, you're holding a mirror up to a real world. And mirrors don't tell lies. They might reverse things a bit, they might distort things a bit, but essentially it's all there, all the colours, all the way, all the shapes are there. So if you're a realist writer, you've got to get it right. You owe it not only to the book, but you owe it to the place that you're writing about. Because we know very well, for example, I mentioned India. We know very well how upset a lot of Indian people can be by the colonial literature about, you know, white colonial literature about India. that misrepresents it. So you don't want to write a book that does harm. So, um, so you need to do that. But what I do is not locate people. I don't hold a mirror up to the real world. I try to dislocate people. I try to make them feel... I recognise this, but I'm not familiar with it. Um, And this leaves me free to tell any lie I want to without people phoning up and saying, ah, but, you know, if you turn left from Bedford Street, that's not Dawson Street, that's Clacton Street, you know, and and your book is counted as incorrect because you've made mistakes. That would never happen to me because the universities my books inhabit are entirely invented by me.
0: So we've got vocabulary vocabulary first we've got probably
1: not autobiography probably not autobiography unless you have lived that wonderful life and if you haven't lived the wonderful life start living it and then you can write about it and the third thing is to be prepared to write badly in order to write well in in the end um and you know this is the truth of the matter is everyone who says that they've got out of every thousand people who said they've got a book in them only one will start out of every thousand people that start a book, only one will finish. For every thousand that finish, only one will get published. For every thousand that get published, only one will write another one. And every thousand people that write two books, only, only one will make a living out of it. I'm exaggerating because I love the word thousand. Um, but it is a very very narrow gate to squeeze through to make have the fortunate kind of career I've had. I've been just lucky. I've been lucky. Um... But it, it is a very, very narrow gate. So you can't only write this book that you want to write because your eye is on being a famous published writer. You've got to write it for the pleasure in the thing itself so that if you don't get published, your book doesn't get published not, or even read by anybody, you'll always say, I'm glad I did that because I created something new. If you get any publishing, publication out of it or even if your wife likes it or whatever, that's a plus. But essentially, you have to do it for the thing itself. Because if you don't love doing the thing itself, who's going to enjoy reading it?
0: I think you're being unduly modest there when you say that you've been lucky. Clearly, you are a a very talented writer. But underneath that, I think, is a a feeling that you have that there you are, a working-class boy from a council estate in Tottenham. And perhaps it would be truer to say that if you can do it, given your background, anyone has a
1: chance. Yeah, but I kind of bristle at that a bit, and and that's because I've never bought into this business that that, that, that um, working class um, communities are um, short on it, on the imaginative uh, life. I mean, I think it's easy to think that now because I think working class culture sort of been destroyed. Uh, when I was young, and I hate going, I hate it when people say when I was young, but when I was young, and and there wasn't television. We didn't have television in our house. And if there was television, there was only one channel and it didn't run for many hours. Um, all the people that I knew had kind of talents. They could sing songs, they could tell jokes, they could do something on the piano, they could play the accordion, uh, they could be hilariously grumpy, they were good gardeners, you know. there was, the, there was People were getting the, um, their transcendence um, by making it themselves in the form of woodwork or cycling or whatever it is. Whereas the trouble with the pervasive medias and, you know, particularly TV is that we get our transcendence drip fred to us um, from great TV programmes that, I, you know, I would have loved to have written, uh, written myself. But it makes, it makes us lazy. So what I think that's happened is that working class culture was always rich. It's just that the publishing industry was middle class. But there's some extent now to which working class culture isn't very rich. And, uh, and I think that's where your question comes from. That there's not, there's, it's, the working class culture now is not very rich, and it still hasn't got a place within the publishing industry.
0: Or it's held not to be rich, in any event, you know, it, it is, mm. it is seen as not the place, I would suggest, even now for working class people to succeed as yeah. writers yeah. less so yeah. than perhaps when you were young but yeah. it is still incredibly difficult for people of all kinds of diverse backgrounds to to make it through in the world of publishing
1: it is but uh, but uh, having to say what i've just said i also want to say that i've um, in my 1986 i first published so how many years is that all my books are still in print I, w- I am the person i am no one has ever treated me in any bad way do not when you finish your book my final bit of advice when you your book and you've got your vocabulary, and you've led the interesting life, and you've learned how to write badly, and all of those things, do not think that publishers are your enemy. The publishers are so desperate for good books. Working class, black, women, whatever, you know, whatever category books, genre books, whatever it is, people want good books. And they are on your side. I have never had an argument with a publisher in all of my publishing time. I've never been at the receiving end of snobbery. I've never felt that I don't belong. If, if there's any sense of me not belonging, it's something that I've imported to it because of my chippiness and my kind of sen- my class sense. Publishers are there to help you, and um, they will get great joy in seeing your book on the bookshelf with a great cover, great reviews, selling wild- widely. Why wouldn't they? Jim Grace, thank you. Thank you, Adrian.